Welcome to the Activist Insight Podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by this year's Activist Insight Half-Year Review, a special report published in association with Olshin Froom Wolowski and FTI Consulting. I'm Ilana DeRay, a financial reporter with Activist Insight. And this month, we're asking, why did Toby and Derek Rice launch a comeback campaign at EQT, more than a year after the firm bought their company, Rice Energy? How does Europe's regulatory framework inhibit short sellers, even when their theses are proven correct? Who is the man behind Coast Capital? And why did he requisition a shareholder meeting at First Group? But first, a look at the trends surrounding shareholder activism in the first half of 2019. Our cover story explores the global outlook of activist investing so far this year. Activism has gotten off to a middling start in 2019, with 581 companies publicly subjected to activist demands in the first half of the year, down 16% from last year's record-breaking start, according to Activist Insight Online. Nonetheless, 2019 has so far been a developmental year for activism, with non-traditional activists initiating campaigns of their own and U.S. activists gaining greater success in Asia. Joining us today is Activist Insight Editor-in-Chief Josh Black, Senior Financial Reporter Yuri Struda, and Financial Reporter Eleanor O'Donnell, all here to share more of the data and what it means. Welcome to the show. Eleanor, over in Europe, we noticed that many companies recently faced demands made by U.S. activists. What is the motivation behind their investments across the pond? Yeah, I mean, the number of companies publicly subjected to um, activist demands was down this year compared to last year. You know, only 86 companies had been faced with demands as of June 30th compared to 106 in the same period last year. But a lot of these companies were faced with U.S. activists. 55% of the demands were board-related, not that all of those were successful, um, with Coast Capital kind of failing to replace six of First Group's directors and Sherborne investors trying and failing to appoint, you know, their founder, Ed Bramson, to Barclays board. I mean, Value Act Capital Partners, however, was successful in its push for um, Merlin Entertainments to go private. But I mean, when I was speaking to experts and advisory firms, I was told that the flock of outside activism could be put down to the depreciation of the pound um, and the sophistication of the UK capital market. Um, I've also been made aware that with a lot of activists comfortable in the activist landscape, they can now come across and deploy capital in the UK. Yuri, we also saw a surge of activism from foreign activists in Asia, specifically in Japan. What were some of the most common demands made? Surprisingly, the most common demands were for corporate governance changes and capital return programs such as higher dividends and share buybacks. Japan remains attractive for activist investors thanks to companies' large cash reserves or stock holdings that could be easily sold. Now it's becoming increasingly easier to push for changes, and this year we saw three big activist victories, namely at Toshiba, Olympus and Lexel. Share buybacks are already hovering near record highs and this likely emboldens foreign investors to push for more. I expect Japan will become even more attractive over the next years. In particular, it will be interesting to see how changes in takeover guidelines will affect 
MA activism, which has been in decline as this activity is often time consuming and the results have been poor historically. In South Korea, activity cooled somewhat compared with last year when the country's National Pension Service adopted the stewardship code, although it remained at historically high levels. South Korean corporations are also attractive for their idle cash and relative undervaluation. Board-related activism is also a significant focus in the U.S., yet activists rarely took their fights all the way to a vote. Only one activist won board seats in a contested meeting, while activists gained 129 board seats from 72 settlements during the same period, Activist Insight Online data shows. Josh, what were some of the other big trends of the season, specifically in terms of M&A and non-traditional activists? Yeah, so M&A was definitely a big feature of this season. In the US, it really captured the imagination because we saw a big increase in activists operating on the buyer side of transactions and actually trying to scuttle deals rather than pushing for bumpetrage or trying to push companies to sell themselves, which had been the traditional way of making money. And I think the reasons for that are with the markets quite fairly valued, you have a lot of companies who activists have invested in for a while waiting for them to reach a peak valuation. Uh, they're still below the the market and activists are upset that they're using their equity to purchase other companies rather than focusing on their operations and increasing earnings per share in a way that will will maximize the value of those stakes and it's kind of particularly obvious at United Technologies, which is buying Raytheon before it's even split up, uh, which two activists, Pershing Square Capital Management and Third Point Partners, have long hoped for. And then you saw Bristol Myers, uh, targeted by Starboard. They felt that there were lots of things on an operational front that they could do with Bristol Myers and that they didn't need to be buying Celgene and taking a risk on uh, some products with upcoming patent cliff. And they were unsuccessful there despite a very rare occurrence, which is a traditional long-only manager speaking out against the deal. You don't often see that in the US, but we saw it quite a lot this year. We had T. Rowe Price also coming out against Occidental's purchase of Anadarko. That really riled up shareholders because Occidental did it in a way that avoided a shareholder vote. So lots of uh, lots of M&A activism on the buyer side in America. We also saw M&A activism rising in Europe, uh, which is interesting. You know, there's not a lot of growth in Europe at the moment. So consolidation, breakups, good ways for activists to try and get their teeth into companies there. In London in particular, non-traditional activists or what we might call traditional asset managers have long been quite vocal about deals. So it wasn't so much surprised to see some of those speaking out, you know, Schroeder's and legal in general and so on. Another interesting uh, tangent on the non-traditional activists is the rise in owner operators agitating in the energy sector in particular. Uh, we're talking about EQT a little bit later. Uh, we also had Kimmeridge Energy at PDC Energy running their first proxy fight. And it's interesting that at EQT, the activists were very successful. They went for a majority of the board. They had a 100-day operating plan. Kimmeridge was kind of more mild in its demands. They aimed for a minority slate, but they weren't successful. And that may be because there's more active managers on the EQT side. It may be because, you know, they really didn't have a more comprehensive future that they could promise to shareholders. Uh, but those 
two interesting case studies, and given there were so few proxy contests in the US, I think it makes sense to analyze the differences between those and to think about the reasons for which the results were quite different. Thanks all for being here for our next report. Energy company EQT is welcoming a new leadership team after shareholders elected Toby Rice's seven-person slate and guaranteed him the CEO spot. Toby teamed up with his brothers Derek and Danny to nominate seven candidates for election to the board of EQT after the Pittsburgh-based energy producer bought publicly traded Rice Energy in November 2017 making Toby and his brothers significant shareholders of EQT. Team Rice worried that synergies from the acquisition had been lost and complained that EQT failed to retain talent from Rice Energy, arguing that shareholders should install Toby as the company's next chief executive to help start a turnaround. EQT said it had undergone a culture change after Rob McNally was elevated from the chief financial officer's role to become CEO in November. It countered that its board should not be a friends and family club and renominated Danny Rice so that it could argue that one Rice brother was enough. Both sides used the universal proxy, with the dissidents seeking seven of the 12 board seats up for grabs. But if that lent the Rice brothers a slight advantage when it came to winning at least some representation, EQT ran a tough personal campaign against Toby, talking of serious concerns about his time at Rice Energy and professionalism. Active managers, including hedge fund D.E. Shaw Investment Management and largest shareholder T. Rowe Price, largely backed the Rice slate. However, proxy advisors Institutional Shareholder Services and Glass-Lewis gave contradictory recommendations for the dissidents and management respectively. Scotland-based transportation firm First Group has long been on a bumpy journey but nearly derailed this summer when it finally attracted an activist that was willing to take matters to a vote. New York-based Coast Capital demanded seven board seats the company's exit from operating UK railways, and a separation of its North American and European operations. Although Coast lost the vote after its leading nominee pulled out, the campaign prompted a strategic shift, with the sale of the Greyhound bus company, a pivot to North America, and the resignation of Chairman Wolfhard Hauser effective later this month. Coast uses activism as a tool when necessary, arguing that its active investment process leads to value enhancement. The event-driven hedge fund, primarily focuses on Europe and other developed markets, and was founded by JANA Partners alum James Rosta in 2016 after his previous firm, White Eagle Partners, closed its stores in 2015 following a redemption of capital by its only large institutional investor. Rosta told Activist Insight Monthly that he thinks First Group stock will not do well without his nominees on the board, even though it is moving in the right direction with the resignation of Hauser. The problem, ultimately, is a human one, Rasta said, a great board, a great management team is intelligent, experienced, and humble. When we work with management teams and boards that don't have this holy trinity of characteristics, it usually leads to underperformance. Muddy Waters Research has finally been vindicated for its short theses on French grocer Casino and its parent company, Rally. Though the vindication hasn't helped the short seller make amends with the market regulator Autorité des Marchés Financiers, also known as AMF. Rally in May filed for bankruptcy three and a half years after Muddy Waters founder, Carson Block, 
said CEO Jean-Charles Nauri must choose between bankrupting rally or unsustainably leveraging up casino to pay dividends to its parent. Shortly after the bankruptcy action, the IMF accused Block of trying to manipulate the stock prices of both Rally and Casino, allegations strongly refuted by Block. The regulators said the short seller's report did not meet the principles of, quote, probity, impartiality, clarity, and precision. Block exited his short positions in both companies when he learned that Nauri had obtained support from certain powerful individuals. If found guilty by the IMF, Block may receive an administrative fine, although Casino also wants him to be pursued criminally. Regulatory hostility in the heart of Europe has deterred short sellers from launching campaigns, although it has not prevented them from taking short positions. German watchdog Baffin recently filed charges against journalists and short sellers for alleged stock manipulation at Wirecard. The move came after Baffin prohibited new or increased short positions in the shares of Wirecard for two months. French lawyer Sophie Verme told activists Insight Monthly that market authorities in both France and Germany misunderstand the roles they should be playing, while U.S. market regulators encourage price discovery. In Europe, they focus too much on questions of fairness and ethics, she said. European Union regulation regarding activist short-selling or its lack thereof, may also be at fault. Short-selling falls into the category of traditional investment research instead of being regarded as a matter of freedom of speech like journalism. After all, short-sellers always say their research pieces are not investment recommendations. A study by Verme concludes that EU regulations need to evolve as the standards for investment recommendations are incompatible with short-selling activism. And now for a couple of stories that did not make it into the magazine. Barnes & Noble has agreed to sell itself to Elliott Management for $475.8 million in cash, ending a months-long strategic review that began in October 2018. The $6.50 per share deal represents a 43% premium to Barnes & Noble's 10-day volume-weighted average closing price ended June 5th. The transaction comes one year after Elliott purchased Waterstones, the largest retail bookstore in the UK. Our investment in Barnes & Noble, following our investment last year in Waterstones, demonstrates our conviction that readers continue to value the experience of a great bookstore, Elliott portfolio manager Paul Best said. The deal also comes after activists Schadenfeld Management and Sandel Asset Management called on Barnes & Noble to initiate a strategic review and consider a sale. Schadenfeld last month came out against the Elliott deal, claiming it undervalues the bookseller. Schadenfeld urged the special board committee to allow all interested parties the chance to communicate and submit superior bids. However, Barnes & Noble said that it did not receive any other takeover offers from potential suitors before the deal's keep shop deadline, which allowed the bookseller to strike a better deal before end of day June 13th without penalty. On the other side of the world, Third Point Partners has called on Sony to spin off its semiconductor business and list it in Japan. Third Point estimated that the semiconductor business could be worth as much as $35 billion within five years if Sony executes on its long-term vision outlined at the company's Investor Relations Day in May. The activist investor also urged the Japanese electronics giant to sell off its insurance business and its stakes in Spotify, Olympus, 
and M3. Third point asserted these divestments would enable Sony to invest heavily in its core businesses, gaming, music, and movies. The activist estimated that the four investments currently account for 20% of Sony's market capitalization. Dan Loeb's hedge fund believes the potential for growth in Sony is quite significant. We rarely find companies like Sony that have a depressed valuation, high-quality underlying businesses, numerous options for portfolio optimization, and a capable management team. The activist said. News of Third Point's investment in Sony first circulated in April, six years after the activist previously invested in a Japanese electronics firm. Third Point exited its last investment in Sony in 2014, gaining about 20% after a year of pushing the firm to spin off its entertainment segment. Loeb recently admitted that his firm left money on the table as Sony enjoyed a good run after his exit from the stock. However, Loeb said he expects a response to his new proposal within six months to a year. The activist is not expected to campaign for a board seat, although he did tell Nikkei Asian Review that the company needed more operational expertise. Sony was once a market leader in consumer electronics, but is now in the middle of a turnaround plan led by its chief executive. The firm fell behind Apple in innovation after the release of the iPod in 2001 and the iPhone in 2007. Since then, Sony has reinvented itself as an entertainment company with its music content and video game unit. That's all for this month's episode of the Activist Inside Podcast. If you like what you hear or want to read more, you can subscribe to Activist Insight Monthly by emailing subscriptions at activistinsight.com. For comments or questions about the podcast, or if you want something discussed on a future edition, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Ilana Duray. Thanks for listening.